In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening, and we thank you for keeping the rain off uh, for a little while, hope it lasts until uh, you all get home safely. Uh, help us to open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say to us through Holy Scripture tonight, as we always ask, because... <clears throat> Often we can get so bound up in preconceived notions and misunderstandings that it's hard to see what it is that you want us to see and hear what you want us to hear. So help us to open our minds and our hearts so that we might give you praise and thanksgiving and all things. Tonight we're going, oh, by the way, <clears throat> my typist made another little mistake on uh you know, this is actually the seventh meeting, not the sixth. So if you've picked up one that says the sixth meeting, uh, but it's dated today, uh, it should really be the seventh meeting. Uh, the typist is getting better, but I still have to uh, get after him or her or whatever. <clears throat> Anyways, all right. Uh, tonight we're going to begin... Uh, with a subject that I think is of uh, a lot of interest. There's a lot of history that goes along with it. Now, again, you might say, well, why do we have to bother with all this history stuff? But I think you can see that it helps to understand where things came from and why. Is that Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. Because if you just study this book without understanding the background and the history, you wouldn't really catch the full meaning of what they're trying to say. And furthermore, there would be some confusing, because there already is, but I mean there would be some more confusing uh, statements made, and we'll cover some of that tonight. In most cases, it does not. The question was, or the statement was, uh, the confusing uh, dietary laws uh, of the Jewish Torah. And I was just discussing that with Dick up here earlier before we got started. You've got to kind of remember that the dietary laws were put in place by Moses and his followers, not all of them were started by Moses, but some of them were, for health and hygiene purposes only. Because, remember, they were out in the desert, and they had no refrigeration, you know, as we do today. Uh, no big refrigeration trucks drove up and followed them behind or anything. Uh, so they had to be concerned about spoilage. And food was rather rare and scarce in the desert. And therefore, it was important that they watch the dietary laws. Now, over a period of time, between the 15th century when Moses was on the scene, leading the people out of Egypt, and the 7th or 8th century or the 8th and 9th century B.C., you know, 700 years later, many of those dietary laws became religious laws. 
In other words, the observing of them became something apart from health and hygiene and became part of the religious rules and regulations, part of the 613 laws that the Jewish people still honor. In fact, almost worship. Um, So, it is that transition from just health and hygiene to religious laws that are the concern of the people at this time. Now, your question was, how does that pertain to us today? And in most cases, it doesn't. All right? Now, there is one exception, and I'll get into that in a few minutes. Okay? But we don't have to worry about those same dietary laws and most of the Jewish laws. Now, they all came out of the Ten Commandments, and those still apply to us and everyone else in the world. All right? Even though some people will deny that, uh, and a lot of people right here in our own country will will deny that. By the way, we are going to have a monument uh, placed right outside our church a stone monument where the Ten Commandments are carved into that monument and it will be placed out someplace close to the front door of the church. Not real close so you're going to trip over it or anything and it will be fairly uh, big so you won't be able to miss it. Uh, but part of it is the church is way of honoring the Ten Commandments from which all of the Jewish laws began. All right? Prior to the, prior to God's giving Moses the Ten Commandments, the Jewish people had no written laws whatsoever. And they really had no written covenant whatsoever. They had a promise, but it was verbal. From that, the one sanctuary this is chapter 12, the one sanctuary here. These are the statutes and decrees which you must be care- which you must be careful to observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to occupy as long as you live on its soil. Now remember, we're talking about the Deuteronomist giving these laws to people long after the fact. All right? And it is not that they didn't know, the people didn't know about these. They had them stated elsewhere in the books of uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But these are being restated because of the lapse of interest and the allegiance to God the Father by the people of the day and time that this was written. So by restating these, in a very strong way, it was hoped that the people of the time it was written would take notice and straighten up and and fly right, as they say. Unfortunately, that did not happen until much later, after the Babylonian exile. says, destroy without fail every place on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every leafy tree where the nations you are to dispossess worship their gods. Well, as we've said before, this did not really happen uh, 
to the degree that this is implying. And the problem is that during the 8th and 9th century when this was written, these sanctuaries of pagan gods were increasing, particularly in the north, the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom was what? Judah, right, okay. Um, you have to remember that the kingdom was brought together by King David in the 10th century, but unfortunately it was split apart again by Solomon's son. It says, tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, destroy by fire their sacred poles, and shatter the idols of their gods, that you may stamp out the remembrance of them in any such place. That is not how you are to worship the Lord your God. Instead, you shall resort to the place which the Lord your God chooses out of all of your tribes and designates as his dwelling place, and there you shall bring your holocausts and sacrifices, your tithes and personal contributions, your votive and free will offerings, and the firstlings of your herds and flocks. Now, what he's talking about, or what the writer is talking about here, is that there had been a movement started with King David to honor God by establishing the primary sanctuary of the Jewish faith in the city of Jerusalem. All right. It did not take hold at that time or during the time of the King Hezekiah or Josiah. It was ignored because the people were more interested in uh, having <coughs> fun and games and a number of other distractions that we call idolatry today. All right. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were all worshiping uh, statues and pillars and altars and so forth, the sun and the moon and the stars. But many of them were. This was brought in by other nations who were uh, infiltrating the uh, both the northern and the southern kingdom. And this is what <coughs> the Deuteronomists were trying to stamp out was all of this idolatry that was going on because it was definitely against the law of God. Now, even though Jerusalem was chosen as the sanctuary, the primary sanctuary of all Judah, or all Jeru Ju Judaism, I should say, uh, it really didn't take hold until after the Babylonian exile primarily because of the way it is worded in this book. Remember, this book was ignored by the people for whom and to whom it was written, but it was spirited away and taken to Babylon, where they finally got the message of why they were there, and in reading this book, they realized what they had done wrong and had vowed by that time to finally mend their ways once they got returned or were returned uh, to Israel, or actually Judah, because they would not return to Israel 
um, at all for a number of, of years, many years, many, many years, okay? So what they're talking about here is the sanctity of Jerusalem as being the primary sanctuary, all right? Now, I want to go on a little bit, and then I'm going to come back to this for a reason. I command you, your holocaust, your sacrifices, etc. You shall, you shall make merry before the Lord your God with your sons and daughters, your male and female slaves, as well as with the Levite who belongs to your community, but has no share of his own in your heritage. Now, anyone remember what that's all about? When the twelve tribes of Israel crossed over the Jordan into the promised land under the guidance of Joshua and Caleb, the Lord told them that each of the tribes was to occupy a certain specific plot of the promised land. And there they were supposed to uh, sort of confine themselves. The exception to that was, well, there was a couple of exceptions, but we won't get into the others. The exception to that was the tribe of Levi. Levi and all of his descendants were to be the, what they called, eventually called the Levitical priests. And they were to live among all the other tribes and serve them as priests. The priesthood of Judaism that we think of uh, did not really develop until after the Babylonian exile. But they did have priests of a different kind um, prior to that, and that was the job, you might say, of the Levites. And that is why they are being accepted here. Not A-C-C, E-P-T-E-D, but E-X, right? Accepted. Okay. But after you have crossed the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as a heritage, when he has given you rest from all your enemies around you, and you live there in security, then to the place which the Lord your God chooses as the dwelling place for his name, you shall bring all your offerings that I command you. And he repeats the same kind of words that were over here. Now, if you go down to the middle of, or, or about three quarters of the way down on page 42, it says, of course, Deuteronomy could not name the city since Jerusalem was not incorporated or did really not exist into Israel until the time of David. And here we're talking about, and the wording here is being presented as if it came from Moses way back in the 15th century. Right. You've got to constantly keep that idea in mind. This was written in the uh, 8th or 9th century B.C., or 9th and 8th century, I should say, B.C., uh, but it was put back into the time and the mouth of Moses to give it authority and to kind of wake these people up. It sort of makes me think 
what were the people thinking about, the educated people of the 8th and the 9th century, once they read this? They knew that many of the things written in here could not have been written by Moses or even said by Moses because many of them did not exist. And this is one of those examples, all right, until a much later time period. So were they fooling somebody? Were the Deuteronomists trying to fool somebody? Or did they really expect everybody to believe that these were the words of Moses? Frankly, we don't know. But you can look at it this way. The number or percentage of the educated people was minuscule compared to the majority. And it was the majority who were following the very small number of people who could understand. And so it was important really to present this as if it came directly out of the mouth of Moses, all right? Even though some small number of people must have realized that it wasn't. Does that make sense? Okay. And so that is why the wording here says, (coughs) the wording at the top of page 43 on the left side, then to the place which the Lord your God chooses, which of course they're referring to is Jerusalem, but it didn't exist back in the 15th century, and therefore they can't really say that at this time. Anyone know what the little town of Jerusalem was called before it was called Jerusalem? What was the name of Jerusalem before it was called Jerusalem by David, Salem, yes, the last part of that word. The word Jerusalem itself means going up to Salem. And unfortunately, Salem, Massachusetts came from essentially the same place. Let's go down to the profaned and sacred animals. This is rather interesting and This leads back into our question uh, before we started here. However, in any of your communities, you may slaughter and eat to your heart's content. Because when it says, however, it's saying, keep in mind, if the sanctuary is going to be in Jerusalem, not everybody can get there very quickly. Again, you know, no refrigeration. So they're putting in there a caveat that makes it okay. It says, however, in any of your communities, you may slaughter and eat to your heart's desire as much meat as the Lord your God has blessed you with. Now, this is one of those statements that could not have been said by Moses for a couple reasons. One, in the desert, while they were wandering for 40 years, they only had sheep. And in most cases in that culture, they didn't eat meat every day. All right, so they couldn't have meat, uh, as it says here, uh, as much as, you know, as much as you want, uh, because that just wasn't a practical uh, situation. You did not slaughter uh, a sheep every day, and there was no refrigeration to keep leftovers unless it was dried or smoked. 
Only you shall not partake of the blood. This is one of the things that I'm really interested in getting into. But must pour it out on the ground like water. All right. Now, this was a law of Moses that you were not permitted to eat in any way, shape, or form the blood of animals. You know, people today do make blood sausage and a few other things. Uh, borscht, whatever. Uh, but it became a superstition over a period of time. This was a dietary law. Common sense. Remember that diseases are carried primarily by blood. And blood transfusions, whether it's through consumption or any other way, can pass diseases from one person to another. So this was strictly a law for health reasons. But over a period of time, like I said, many of these laws, which were strictly for health and hygiene reasons, became religious observances. All right? Now, it's interesting that Moses or Deuteronomy uh, condemns the use of anyone's blood or using the blood of animals, all right? And that is because, over a period of time, the superstition built up that if you drank or ate the blood of animals, you would become like that animal. And that's, you know, that's not too difficult to understand how that could happen over a period of time in primitive people. And so, today, even today, Jewish people do not eat, or in any way, shape, or form, the blood of animals. It is forbidden by the law of Moses, the Mosaic laws. Now, let's come to the teachings of Christ. Christ said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life in you. So, how can he demand that we eat his flesh and drink his blood if it says right in here that you can't do that? Okay. Anyone got an answer to that? Oh, Connie, I know you know the answer, so I'm not going to call on you. <laughs> yes, yes, Connie gave the correct answer. It is because you, he, because Christ wants you to become like him. Without eating his flesh and drinking his blood, you cannot have his life in you, and that's what he wants. Because it's perfect. And if he is perfect, and you have his life in you, then you're on the road to perfection. Does that make sense? And that's exactly what Christ has done. He's picked up this superstition and turned it around and given it an entirely new meaning. Yes, George? Well, they don't accept it. Yes. Well, many things are. Yeah, and that's partly, of course, why he was rejected. You know, uh, there is a, in the gospel, I forget which one now, a pen, where Christ is teaching this very thing. 
about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And some of the Pharisees or some of the Jewish people start walking away and they're saying, this is too much for us, we can't accept that. And so Christ turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter answers what? Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Yes. Where would we go? That's right. And that's true today as much as it was 2,000 years ago. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have eternal life in you. Now, that brings up a question about Christian denominations that do not celebrate the Eucharist or the communion. You know, they rely solely on reading the Bible and singing and prayers, etc., all in good faith. I'm not denying any of that. But if they don't have an authentic communion service, and how can they when they are not consecrated priests? What will the outcome be? And that is kind of sad when most of them that I've talked to, and I bring this up quite often when I'm talking to somebody who is of a non-Catholic Christian faith, what about the Eucharist? When do you celebrate that? And many of them just say, oh, we don't do that anymore. That's not necessary. And then, of course, I quote Christ's very words. And they sort of stammer and stutter and, you know, they just say, well, we don't, we don't do that. <laughs> well, you know, smorgasbord religion. You know, I'll believe this, but I won't believe that and so forth and so on. All right, but do you all understand now the, this partaking of the blood in the Jewish law? It was forbidden for dietary purposes, health and hygiene. Okay. <coughs> it says, moreover, you shall not in your own communities partake of your tithe of grain or wine or oil. Remember, people in those days didn't have a lot of exchangeable money, but they tithe by giving uh, produce from their farms or livestock or whatever. And that's existed right up uh, onto today. Uh, in the wild west of the United States, that was a form of barter that was very common. Uh, let's see. Moreover, you shall not in your own communities partake of your tithe of grain or wine or oil or the firstborn of your herd or flock of any offering you have vowed of your free will offerings or of your personal contributions. These you must eat before the Lord your God in the places he chooses along with your son and daughter and your male and so forth and so on. But take care to not neglect the Levite for that, and we explained that a little while ago, the Levite subsisted on the charity of all of the other tribes. Okay. After the Lord your God has enlarged your territory, as he promised, when you wish meat for food, you may eat it at will, to your heart's desire. And if you choose, uh, if you, I'm sorry, and if the place which the Lord your God chooses for the abode of his name is too far 
you may slaughter in the manner I have told you of any of the herd or flock that the Lord has given you and eat it at your heart's desire in your own community. What he's saying here is, and I'll use the modern day word, all right, the meat that is slaughtered for ritual purposes in Jerusalem. I'm talking about the time uh, of this writing or up until the time of Christ, was considered kosher because it was blessed uh, and slaughtered by the rabbi. But what it's saying here is that if a person lived too far away from Jerusalem, remember Jerusalem extends almost 100 miles north and south, and people are not going to run down there just to get, you know, Saturday night's dinner ready. Okay, so it's saying that you can do that under certain conditions, and that's acceptable. But again, people in this time period did not eat meat every day. That was not part of their diet. Let's go to chapter... uh, Well, wait a minute... (laughs) I'm skipping over some things that are quite important, but if you have questions, you know, let me know, and we'll go back to them. Uh, Because we've got a lot to cover tonight, and I want to be sure that we get the more important things done. I want to go over to chapter 13. Penalties for idolatry. Now remember, this is the whole reason why this book is written. And that is why they're going to be real strong here. Every command that I enjoin on you, you shall be careful to observe, neither adding to it nor subtracting from it. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer who promises you a sign or wonder. Now, let's stop there for a moment. There were different kinds of prophets. We always think of the prophets, the literary prophets that left us Uh, beautiful writings in our Bible. But in addition to that, there were what was called at the time the guild prophets. Remember, the prophets came on the scene in the same time period to combat the idolatry and the apostasy that Deuteronomy is trying to stamp out. Because it is God's way of counterbalancing the evil of these leaders who are leading the people astray. And the prophets, you know, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the way down, uh, 15 of them, have left us beautiful writings. And they came on the scene beginning in the very late 10th century, more Obvious Amos came along the first of the, I mean, the early part of the ninth century B.C. And they lasted down through this whole third uh, of the four time periods. All right. After the Babylonian exile, when people finally got the message back in the down in the fifth century, then the prophets faded out. But there was a school of prophets called the guild prophets who were trying to imitate the prophets that God sent. Guild. 
G-U-I-L-D, guild prophets. In other words, school prophets, all right, who were trying to imitate the teachings that God, God's prophets were trying to, but they would sway the people however the rulers wanted them to sway the people. And of course, that's how Deuteronomy is looking at the prophets. They're not singling out God's prophets, but they're not making the distinction either. Um, so you've got to be careful in when they're talking about this. It says, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer. Now, dreaming was one way that God spoke to many people, particularly in the Old Testament and in the beginning of the New Testament. All right. Um, Joseph was one of those in the New Testament that received messages by dreams. Um, Zachary, St. John the Baptist's father, was another one. You know, and we had others that received messages through dreams. It was a very ordinary way of God transmitting uh, various messages because there was no Holy Spirit open to the public, open to the general people until after the death and resurrection of Christ. All right? Uh, I'm sorry, Anna. Who, uh, the guild, the guild prophets. How could you tell one from another? I mean, well, by their teaching. Because the teaching was so different? Yes. The teaching was very different and it was slanted always to whatever who was supporting the guild prophets. Yeah. And misleading in most cases. Yeah. All right. But dreamers. All right. Now, in the book of Daniel, Daniel was a dreamer. Uh, a person who was receiving messages uh, from God in some way uh, and would relate them. Or he would also interpret dreams. Uh, Joseph, not St. Joseph, but Joseph in the Old Testament, Jacob's second youngest of the twelve sons, was considered a dreamer. All right. So this was not uncommon. Uh, that's kind of the way you have to look at it. All right. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer who promises you a sign or wonder, urging you to follow other gods, that's why gods are in small uh, letter here, whom you have not known, and to serve them, even though the sign or wonder he has foretold you comes to pass. Pay no attention to the words of the prophet or the dreamer, for the Lord your God is testing you to learn whether you really love him with all your heart and with all your soul, repeating the first commandment. Okay. The Lord your God shall you follow, and him shall you fear. His commandment shall you observe, and his voice shall you heed. This, of course, is the Deuteronomous way of condemning the idolatry that was running rampant, particularly in the northern kingdom of Israel, but also uh, to some degree in the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay. <clears throat> Let's go over um, to the next state. But the prophet 
or that dreamer shall be put to death, because in order to lead you astray from the way which the Lord your God has directed you to take, he has preached apostasy uh, from the Lord. No, he has preached apostasy from the Lord. Now that might sound strange, but you all know what apostasy, apostasy is. This is for people who once believed in God and in Judaism and followed and then turned away from that true belief to follow a pagan God. Okay. That's true with Christians today. People who turn away from Christ and follow some other faith or ignore Christ altogether, even though they don't follow another faith, that is called apostasy. And unfortunately, it is happening rapidly. Let's go down to verse 7. If your own full brother, or your son, or daughter, or your beloved wife, or your intimate friend, entices you secretly to serve other gods, whom you and your fathers have not known, gods of any other nation, near at hand or far away, from one end of the earth to the other. Do not yield to them or listen to them, nor look with pity upon them to spare or shield him, but kill him. Your hand shall be the first uh, raised to slay him. The rest of the people shall join in with you. Now, not a lot of that happened. But the Deuteronomists here are so strong in their belief and the condemnation of the idolatry that is going on that they're resulting to uh, pretty strong language that I think would uh, not hold up in court, so to speak. Okay. I want to go over to chapter 14. I'm looking at the clock here so that we don't run out of time. This is a little bit more about the clean and unclean animals, but uh, it's confusing uh, to many people, and I'd like to hopefully clear it up. At the top of the, well, in the middle of the page uh, 48, at the top of the commentary section, says, according to Deuteronomy, Israel's continued existence is dependent upon maintaining its commitment to God. True. Any compromise is equivalent to communal suicide. The Deuteronomists make their point with shocking clarity and single-minded conviction. There is no room whatsoever for anyone within the community who fosters an attitude of apostasy. Israel life and future hang in the balance. What choice does Israel have? And it doesn't. And that was proven in the latter part of the 8th century, 722 B.C., when the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom and essentially wiped it out. And so what they're saying came to be. Unfortunately, of course, Many of those writers probably did not live long enough to see it because, as I said, this was written 
quite a bit later, uh, or earlier, really, when you're speaking about BC. <coughs> Excuse me. Holiness. I'm reading at the bottom here. At first glance, the material of this chapter seems to have little to do with holiness. Aha. Uh-huh. That is true if one defines holiness in terms of virtue to be acquired and vices to be avoided. From the Israelite perspective, holiness is a consequence of God's uniqueness. The God of Israel is not like the gods of other nations. To the And so those who serve this God our God, cannot pattern their behavior according to the customs associated with the service of foreign gods. Israel is to be holy, and that is unique as its God is holy. In other words, you cannot straddle the fence and worship the one true God and pagan gods at the same time. And a lot of people tried to do that. You, you particularly where there was intermarriage of a Jewish person with somebody from outside of the Jewish community. And that happened between King Ahaz and his wife Jezebel. She was from outside the Jewish community and she insisted on bringing her faith and her uh, beliefs in and she convinced her husband to set up uh, sanctuaries uh, and altars and so forth to honor her gods and so he was straddling the fence alright and trying to lump all the gods together and you can't do that and what they're saying here is belief in the one true God and honoring him to the exclusion of all other beliefs is the only way to salvation and that's true then and it's true today. Right. <clears throat> now, clean and unclean animals, again, is part of the dietary law that became a religious observance over a period of time. Going up to 14, verse 3. You shall not eat any abominable thing. These are the animals that you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the red deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the ibex and the addicts, the oryx and the mountain sheep. Any animal that has hoofs, you may eat, provided it is a cloven hoof and chews the cud, such as cows and steers. All right. But you shall not eat any of the following that only chew the cud or only have cloven hoofs, the camel, and hare and the rock badger, which indeed chew the cud, but do not have hoofs, and are therefore unclean for you. And the pig, which indeed has hoofs and is uncloven-footed, but does not chew. And why? Anyone know why? Yes, but uh, that's not exactly the reason, because they didn't know what trigonosis was back in those days. Okay, it is because they're scavengers. All right, all of these animals that are, uh, you know, the 
The condemned ones are scavengers. And that is why they are condemned. Yes? Well, yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe they wash their food before they eat it, you know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, well, maybe that's still not harmful because we eat flounder and, you know, cod and those are bottom feeders, that kind of thing. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, camels are sort of one of those questionable things here. I don't think they eat camels, but, uh, well, all right, but <laughs> I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Probably, yeah, that's what Susan said, because they use them for transportation. Yeah, not only riding, but also a beast of burden, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you don't want to, you know, sort of bite the hand that carries you, so to speak. Okay. Uh, says of the, and this might answer your part of your question, George, or make it even more so. Of the various creatures that live in the water, whatever has both fins and scales, you may eat. But all of those that either lack fins or scales, you shall not eat. They are unclean for you. And there again, that's bottom feeders, such as the eel. Yeah. You may eat all clean birds, but you shall not eat any of the following. The eagle, the vulture, the osprey, and various kites and falcons. Again, because they are scavengers. All right. All various species of crows. The ostrich, the night, the night jar, whatever that is. The gull, the various species of hawks. The owl, the screech owl, the ibis, the desert owl, the buzzard, so forth and so on. In other words, scavengers are all forbidden for good reason. For good reason. You must not eat any animal that has died of itself. For you are a people sacred to the Lord, your God, but may give it to an alien who belongs to your community. You can't eat it, but you can give it to someone else. <laughs> yeah. Huh? Roadkill. Oh, yeah, roadkill. <laughs> uh, I could tell you a little story about roadkill, but I won't do it. <laughs> you shall not, here's, here's one that often gets a lot of people. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. No. Which means, of course, you would have to either milk, the, for example, uh, a lamb and then take a kid from that same lamb and boil it in its mother's milk. It says down below here, about three quarters of the way on the page, especially interesting is verb 21b, which prohibits the boiling of a kid in its mother's milk. Later... <clears throat> The rabbis extrapolated from this law the prohibition of eating dietary, uh, uh, eating dairy and meat products uh, at the same meal. And that, of course, is something that the Jewish kosher people still observe. You shall not eat meat and dietary products at the same meal or at the same table. 
yeah, dairy products. You can't have a ham sandwich without the milk. Right. You cannot. Especially the ham sandwich. God forbid. Oy vey. <laughs> well, you know, even on St. Patrick's Day, they couldn't have corned beef with a, with a Swiss cheese on it, you know, so. Okay. All right. But you see, can you see now why these dietary laws were issued in the first place. They were all common sense health and hygiene reasons. But over a period of time, the observance of them was attached to honoring God and became holy in themselves. It wasn't that that was what was originally intended. Tithes. Each year you shall tithe all the produce that grows in the field you have sown. Then in the place which the Lord your God chooses, again Jerusalem, as the dwelling place of his name, you shall eat in his presence your tithe of the grain, the wine. Remember the sacrifices, particularly of meat, was not a total uh, consumption by the sacrificial fire. Only certain portions of the animal was consumed in the so-called Holocaust fire. The majority of the meat was distributed to the priests, the temple rulers, and many of the people. So, you know, when they talk about the slaughter of hundreds of fat lambs and all of this and that, and there are several examples of that, it was because they were feeding lots of people with that meat. When you get into the Acts of the Apostles, Paul and Peter have a little bit of an argument over that very subject about eating meat that was slaughtered uh, in the sacrifice or for the purpose of sacrifice. Okay, And so you've got to understand that this wasn't a total waste of animals for a sacrifice. Most of the animal was used for food. It says here again about, and I've mentioned this earlier, if, however, the journey is too much for you and you are not able to bring your tithe because the place which the Lord your God chooses, and again, Jerusalem, for the abode of his name is too far for you, considering how the Lord has blessed you, you may exchange the tithe for money and with the purse of money in hand, go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. All right. But people who lived way up in Nazareth, for example, Nazareth is roughly 80 miles from Jerusalem. In the days when there was, you know, no high-speed trains or planes or automobiles or whatever, uh, people couldn't go down to Jerusalem very often, even though there was a rule that said you had to go three times a year on specific holy days. Uh, and many of them did. One of those holy days was the one that Joseph and Mary, when Jesus was 12 or 13 years old, uh, was so-called lost in the temple. Well, he wasn't lost. They were lost. Yeah. <clears throat> 
I want to I want to move on. One of the interesting points that is made on the next page, page 50, right in about the middle, it says in the commentary, throughout this section, Deuteronomy's particular regard for the poor is quite evident. In fact, Deuteronomy 15, verses 4 and 5, claims that obedience could make poverty non-existent. And that's true today. Statisticians tell us that if all the food that was grown throughout the world was properly distributed, there would be no hunger by any nation, person, or family. Okay, But it is due to greed and a lot of other uh, problems that that is not happening. Okay, But the reason that Deuteronomy is paying so much attention to it is for the exact reason that Amos and Hosea and a number of the uh, lesser prophets, literary prophets, were trying to preach about. is because the people got the mistaken notion that if you were poor, it was for your own reason, your own fault. And therefore, you were a sinner. And therefore, you were ignored. Well, that isn't the case, as we all know. Not everybody is um, born with the same number of, the same amount of smarts, so to speak, uh, to provide for themselves. Uh, and therefore, the prophets, as well as the Deuteronomists, are saying that taking care of the poor, the widow, the orphan, uh, the sick, etc., is part of our showing love for God, because God is in those people just as much as he is in uh, the, the wealthy and the elites and the well-educated, etc., probably even more so. Okay. <clears throat> down, further down uh, in the commentary on 50, it says, um, there is no mention of any sacral purpose for tithing as an offering made for God's benefit. Even the use of the tithe as support for priests and Levites is ignored by Deuteronomy. The Levites receive part of the tithe, not because of their priestly status, but because of their need as those without economic status. Now, observe the month of Abib by keeping the Passover of the Lord your God since it was in the month of Abib that he brought you by night out of Egypt. You see, because of the idolatry of the people in the ninth and 10th, 9th and 8th century, they had abandoned most of the Jewish feasts and festivals. And this is the most sacred of the Jewish feasts, Passover which we will observe pretty soon. And so what the Deuteronomists are trying to do is to get that reinstated and follow. You shall offer the Passover sacrifice from your flock or your herd to the Lord your God in the place which he chooses as the dwelling place of his name, again, Jerusalem. You shall not eat unleavened bread with it. 
For seven days you shall eat with it only unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, that you may remember as long as you live the day of your departure from the land of Egypt. For in frightened haste you left the land of Egypt. Nothing leavened may be found in all uh, your territory for seven days. And none of the meat which you sacrificed on the evening of the first day shall be kept overnight for the next day. You may not sacrifice the Passover in any of the communities which the Lord your God gives you. I'm sorry. You may not sacrifice the Passover in any of the communities which the Lord your God gives you. Only at the place which he chooses as the dwelling place of his name and in the evening sunset as the anniversary of your departure from Egypt. In other words, this whole idea of the annual remembrance or memorial of Passover is to keep in mind what God did for the Jewish people. It has really nothing to do with the food that is prescribed, although as you probably know, the Passover meal, the Seder, has many very strictly prescribed foods. Others may be added to it, but these must be consumed. Remember, those are symbols. Each one of those particular foods has a symbol that should remind the people of their uh, deliverance from slavery in Egypt under the hand of Moses. And that is why we today commemorate the death and resurrection of Christ in the same way and virtually at the same time. That's another reason I'll get into in a minute. For us to remember that Christ took the place of the Lamb that was used in the Passover meal and therefore we do not have to partake of the Passover meal but we have to join in and partake of the sacrifice of Christ's death on the cross through our receiving of his body and blood on Easter so that we can commemorate uh, on an annual basis and more often, more often preferably, uh, what Christ did for us in the same way as what God did for the Jewish people in the Passover. So it's so important that you kind of connect these two, but say that one is sort of ground or earthly based, whereas the other one is spiritually base. The deliverance of the Jewish people, the Israelites, from Egypt and the slavery under the Pharaoh was sort of an earth-based type of thing. But that is the greatest event in all of Judaism, then and now. Likewise, in Christianity, The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest event in all of Christianity. And we must remember the why and the wherefore rather than the what. 
And by that I'm saying is, let's not be concerned about what you do at Easter, but why you do it is far, far more important than whether you go to uh, church on Good Friday for three hours or one hour, or say the Stations of the Cross frequently during Lent, which I highly recommend, uh, or, you know, it's not the doing, it's the why. The why you do it, and what you are mentally thinking about. One of the little habits I've gotten into over the last five or six or seven years is I have a DVD of the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And on Good Friday, I watched that all alone. Because it's, to me, almost like going to a Mass. In a way, it is not the same thing, and I recognize that, but it's that same type of reverence. When you put yourself into the scene and become part of the crowd, the good ones, I hope. <laughs> okay? Uh, but you can, you know, you can have your own little special customs that help you to remember what Easter is all about. The sacrificial offering of Christ's body on the cross to satisfy the sins of all mankind. And its acceptance is reconciled, is recognized and affirmed by his resurrection. Christ did not rise from the dead of his own authority. It came from the Father who accepted his offering for the sins of all mankind and in doing so honors Christ with that glory of being called Lord. And that's the whole purpose of Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you want to quickly go to that, Philippians, it's towards the back of your book, chapter 2. And you've all heard this. If you don't have your Bible with you, don't worry. You've all heard this many times. And I'll read it because it's not very long. As though he was in the form of God, in other words, Jesus was always God, he did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at or clung to. But for a time, he emptied himself and took the form of a slave or a human being, being born in the likeness of man. He was known to be of human estate, and that is, while he was living in Jerusalem or Nazareth or whatever, he looked like any other man. And it was thus that he humbled himself, obediently accepting even death, death on the cross. But because of this, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every other name. Now, what name is that? No. Read the rest of it. So that at Jesus' name, every knee must bend in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue proclaim to the glory of God the Father, Jesus Christ is Lord. So when they're saying 
name, it's a little misleading. It really is title. But that is where the father is recognizing the sacrifice of the son and honors that by calling him an equal. Paul's letter to the Philippians is almost all about humility. And that is the supreme example of humility. God himself becoming man with all of man's limitations and dying for all of mankind to make reparation for something that all of mankind could not do for himself. Um, Chapter 15 talks about deaths uh, and the poor. There was a custom that every 50th year, 7 times 7, 49, in order to kind of round that out, every 50th year was a jubilee year. And all debts were to be forgiven. All slaves were to be released. Well, that didn't happen. Although it was presented as if it was something that they all had to believe. And it's interesting because it's one of the 613 Jewish laws, but it is one that is probably ignored by every one of them. Unfortunately, um, there's a number of other smaller or lesser uh, rules in here that I don't think we are going to be getting into. But nevertheless, um, some of them are interesting. There's a couple points that really we're sort of encroaching on next week's discussion here, but I want to talk about it. One of the rules that are being uh, pushed here, you might say, is at the top of page 50. It says, no one should be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. And we talked briefly about this earlier, that there must be two or more witnesses who corroborate the, or collaborate, the uh, accusation before a person can be uh, condemned. But what about Jesus at the time uh, that everybody was screaming and yelling, crucify him? There was only one accusation, if you recall. And think about that when you hear it. <clears throat> There's a, uh, the section on the next page is, like I said, something that is kind of interesting and it briefly touches on what we're going to be talking about next week. But let's go into that for a few minutes. When you have come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and remember, of course, now this is after the fact, because they've already been in the land, uh, the promised land, for a number of years, hundreds of years, on page 57. Yeah. Now they're going back to talk about the time before there was a king. You see, it was the Jewish monarchy that was started in the, you might say, 11th century with King Saul and the demand for a king 
by the Jewish people so that they could be represented and looked upon by other nations in the same way uh, as a sovereign nation. All right. God said, I am your king. And they said, well, that's nice, God, but that's not enough. We want an earthly king. Of course, I'm putting those into my own words. Um, it says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you and have occupied it and, and settled it in it, you should then decide, if you should then decide to have a king over you like all the surrounding nations. Of course, they can't say when you did or you know, because it's already happened. You shall set the man above you as your king whom the Lord your God chooses. He whom you set over you as a king must be your kinsman, a foreigner who is no kinsman of yours you may not set over you. But he shall not have a great number of horses, nor shall he make his people go back again to Egypt to acquire them. Against the Lord's warning that you must never go back to that way again. Now, that's important to remember because that's exactly one of the problems that is existing here. The king uh, Ahaz was the one from Judah, the southern kingdom, who was trying to make an alliance with the pharaoh of Egypt so that the pharaoh would come and fight the battle uh, that the king was going to enter into against the Assyrians. Okay. So, you got to kind of keep that in mind. And so, the Deuteronomists are presenting this as an edict from God through the mouth of Moses. Okay. <clears throat> Neither shall you have a great number of wives, lest his heart be estranged, nor shall he accumulate a vast amount of silver or gold. And that is exactly why God condemned Solomon. Okay. If you go to the first book of Kings and talk about and look up Solomon and some of his doings, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He was a busy man. <laughs> and he collected, you know, all kinds of uh, silver tributes from a number of his subjects, etc., etc. That's all in violation of this rule here. All right. So, even though Solomon is long gone by the time this is written, it is being presented again because it created so much problem and it started the monarchy, the Jewish monarchy, on a downhill slide. So, all right. Let's let's end it there, and we'll pick it up at chapter 18 next week. Any questions? Yes, Pat. I, I'm sorry, Pat. I can't hear you. Well, yeah, you got a point. Let me let me explain what what the question was. Pat is saying that 
it appears that the Jewish people were somewhat in a trap because they were being told to uh, follow the priest, and yet it was the priest who were uh, leading them astray. Well, that's only partly true, uh, because you do know right from wrong, all right? And that's whether you're educated or not. You still know right from wrong. And therefore, the people were being led, yes, but they didn't have to do that. But they did it for, you know, their own hide, you might say, uh, and their own uh, wealth and health and welfare. Um, it's, it's a difficult question, and I think it's a, an honest question that uh, Pat is asking. It's difficult to understand how a certain group of people can preach one thing when everybody else is doing something else. But you got to remember the Deuteronomists were very influential, but unfortunately a very small group of people. Well, no, no. You can see there wasn't that separation of church and state in those days. It was all or nothing. And the trouble is the judges in the ninth and 8th century were just as bad as everyone else was and leading the people astray. If you read, if you read the first and second book of Kings, you will see time after time after time that all of the kings or almost all of the kings and there was 50 some 53 or 55 I forget the number uh, of kings during that uh, almost 500 year period Okay, and they were all except a very few Hezekiah and Josiah they were pretty much all falling away from the ways of God Yes, ma'am. Well, uh, depending on what level of judge that is and what court that is, it will probably be thrown out by an appeals court. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, Dick. Uh, very strongly on 16.6, it says that you can only celebrate the Passover where the Lord wants you to celebrate it. How do they get from that rule to they celebrate it in their own home? Well, <clears throat> you're right. That's what it says. What it means, of course, is that you can only slaughter the sacrificial animal in Jerusalem. Remember, once the sanctuary was established in Jerusalem, that's the only place that sacrificial animals could be slaughtered. However, they did say that if it was too far away from your home, that you could do it in your own home. Yeah. So they did make an allowance for that, the distance, the traveling distance. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. 
Yes, you're right. Now, but to answer your question, I don't think there's any part of the Old Testament that is directly in the Quran. There is a lot of the Quran that uses excerpts and reinterpretations of Jewish history and Jewish scripture. But I don't think you'll find any of it directly in there. No. And, and yes, you have a valid comment uh, that there is a lot of uh, acceptance, you might say, of killing or annihilation. Uh, but much of that is exaggerated uh, because it's after the fact. It's stated much after the fact. Okay. And of course, that was one of the ways that the Jewish writers had of emphasizing a point is to make it as harsh as possible or repeat it as often as possible. And so you have a lot of both. They had no highlighters, that's right, yes. Uh, or <coughs> cursive, uh, italic script, yes. Okay. In fact, there is a one of the early Gutenberg Bibles written back in the 15th century, I believe it is, is in the Library of Congress. It talks about the Word of God. That's the way it is listed. It doesn't say Bible. It says the Word of God. And when you open it up, it is all one word. No periods, no spaces, no anything. It's all connected as if it was one word. All right. Now, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, I would say. You know. Uh, but that's how and why the Bible can often be misunderstood is because if you move the period from here to there, our comma, our space, you can get a totally different understanding of what that statement is. So that's why you've got to be very careful. Father, we thank you for permitting us the time, the opportunity to really examine Holy Scripture, to find out what it's all about. But more importantly, we ask that you help us to understand what it is that you want us to understand and apply for ourselves today. Much of Scripture is confusing to us who live in an entirely different time period. But many of the causes and the reasons for the writing of Deuteronomy still exist today. So help us not to fall into the same trap or be confused or misunderstood in the same way. Give us the strength and the courage to open our minds and our hearts to your Holy Spirit to understand how you want us to understand. So we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing on our efforts as we continue our study of Deuteronomy. We give you praise and thanksgiving in all things. In Jesus' name.